0: You'll notice in the handout, there are about four passages that are in there uh, from the 14th chapter of Luke and the 15th chapter of Luke. Now, Luke 15 is where the prodigal son's parable is found. A A parable is a story, and Jesus told stories because he knows that as human beings, something about a story, it still gets us. We're wired that way. God wired us that way. So we learn best by stories, and it's no coincidence that you know, stories are still popular. That's why we go to the movies, that's why we watch things and learn and uh, continue to read about narratives that, that bring us into some place that we maybe wouldn't have gone unless it's, it provokes our imagination and it gets us thinking in a different direction than we would have. That's one of the reasons why Jesus told stories, because he knew it would connect with us at a visceral level that went beyond just the surface of hearing instruction. This story of the parable of the prodigal son, prodigal means wasteful, really was connected to three stories that he tied together very rapidly. And they're called sometimes in a broad sense, one story, one big story with three mini stories in it. In a big sense, it's the story of lost things. Jesus had a parable, a story of a lost sheep. He had right next to it, a parable, a story of a lost coin, and then he adds the parable of a lost son, the parable of the prodigal, really, which is the parable of two lost sons, as we'll see. And so Jesus weaves these together, but to really appreciate it. Now, one of the options could have been to say, okay, we're starting the parable now of the prodigal. Let's just jump into Luke 15 and start reading it. But to really appreciate what's going on, we have to really look at the context or the setting in which this story was given to appreciate what is actually happening here and the motivation behind it, it's very helpful to go back a little bit and see what actually led up to it, what ramped up to this, what got this thing to come from the heart of the Lord in such a way. And that brings us, in my mind, all the way back to the 14th chapter of Luke. I put in the handout for you verses 1 through 6. You'll notice it there. Look at that with me if you can. I'm just going to read it fairly rapidly. And again, what this is doing is setting... A table for us and it's giving us a context now it says now what happened as he Jesus as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath that they watched him closely now again I don't want to get bogged down here too much but let me just say this is a constant theme in Jesus's day in his ministry there's always this tension the Pharisees and the scribes were the rulers and leaders of Israel And there was a constant tension between them and Jesus, particularly around where do you draw the line on things that relate to the commands of God, the Scriptures, the Older Testament. And one of those issues of controversy was one of the Ten Commandments, which had to do with keeping the Sabbath. Sabbath, the seventh day, was supposed to be a day in which the Lord's people refrained from working, rested, reflected, considered that we are more than just to live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The idea was that we, we are not simply on here, on this earth, to just work and produce, but that we were created with a higher bent to know God. And so the Sabbath principle is valuable, and it also is a statement about our frailty and about the fact that we, are, we need rest to recover and think better. We could spend time just talking about that. But the problem was, by the time that Jesus, you know, started you know, interacting and doing his ministry, he clashes because the Pharisees by this time had added a lot of extraneous details to what it meant to keep the Sabbath. See, the issue was, what really is work? And they had these long, drawn-out, criteria for what was acceptable, what wasn't acceptable, and Jesus was far more working with the spirit of the command than he was about all these other extra t- details that he saw as bogging people down and actually hindering people when the true meaning was to draw them closer to God. So they were constantly there was a tension there. Now, he is invited in this 14th chapter to there to the house of a prominent Pharisee. But we're told that it really is a setup. It's designed, I mean Yes, there was a party. Yes, it was a celebration. Yes, it was a feast. Yes, he was a guest, but they had set something up, and it had to do with this issue. We're told here that they watched him; they were watching him closely. What were they watching him for? Because they had invited someone to come who they knew knew would put him in an interesting position, because it was the Sabbath. And we're told here that it says, "Behold, there was a certain." This is verse two. We're told that there was a certain man before him who had dropsy. You know that is when someone they have a hard time holding on to things and they just they would drop. I'm kidding. I'm joking. That's a joke. (laughs) All right, to drop. See, no, that's a disease, right? I didn't even know it actually. I I, so we don't use the word, Um, an edema, something that is. It's when it's when somebody had liquid that they were swollen with liquid uh, in body fluids and and um, you got to remember. See, we live in a world, uh, honestly that is so completely different than the world uh, even just 2,000 years ago because people could be felled by things that you and I might recover from because we can take a medication in a day or a week and we're better and up and running and we're frustrated sometimes when we get put out of action for a week. Well, people died over those things Eras in different eras. In Jesus' day, they would lose limbs, die. They had many children. Many of them never lived to adulthood. It, it, medicine has advanced so far we take many things for granted and are frustrated when certain things don't happen and we don't get the results we forget how so much of the world has lived for so long and how suffering was such a reality in Jesus' day blindness from a simple uh, blood, you know, simple uh, illness and, and that person was blind for the rest of their lives I mean it's just things that were happening the poor were all around them and there was suffering it was a reality of their world and this person, the, the sad part is that this person, this man with this illness was brought, and honestly, he was just being used. They brought him in to put Jesus on the spot. They wanted to see if Jesus was going to cross the line and actually try to heal him, heal him in this case. And Jesus didn't disappoint. They were watching closely. They brought him there. They wanted to see what's happening. See, notice what it says. It says Jesus. Look at the verse. It says, verse 3, Jesus answering them. What question did they ask? Their question was the man that they placed right in front of him. Like, the question was, what are you going to do? This is the Sabbath. It's like, man, you know, how could you be toying with someone like that? Jesus says, you know what? He didn't go, well, this is just a big ruse. I'm not going to do anything. He heals the man. It was advanced medicine. You know, it's interesting because, I mean, if you really think about it. I mean, some of the stuff that we do now would be considered, like, fanciful and magical for eras past. And yet, we've seen the advancement of medicine and what it can do. But Jesus heals this man. It's like there's an advanced knowledge there and ability and capacity to heal. And that healing touch heals him. And he says, look, you, I know you're being used. Be blessed. Be healed. Your body is touched. Leave this place. Go. And he heals him. And then he turns and he basically says to them, and it, you'll notice what, what the verse is. He says, now, which one of you? Because they, they noticed what he did. No one said anything. And he said, which one of you, if you you have a donkey or an ox? That's verse 5. He answered them because they were silent. He says, which one of you, if you had a donkey or an ox? Now, in some versions, and this will be in some Bibles, you'll periodically, whenever there's a controversy on a point of translation from the original manuscript, which our English Bibles translated from, the Bibles, because they're extraordinarily careful in handling the sacred text, will always make a notation. And the notation that is in uh, the scripture around this verse is that that word donkey can also be translated son. So it was like, it, and let's just say for a moment he used it that way. That he said, which of you having a son or an ox that fell into a pit on the Sabbath day would it truly, you know, would any of you really refrain from rescuing him or that valuable piece of merchandise for you? No, you wouldn't think anything of it. He says, so, so, you know, don't get caught up in why I've just healed this man. It's violating the, the, the law. And so it says they said nothing. Look at verse 6. And they could not answer him regarding these things. They said nothing. So the party goes on. And if you read the 14th chapter, which you might want to do in your own time afterwards, you see some very interesting things take place. He's, the day goes on all of a sudden. He's watching how they're all jockeying for position. It's all about power and prestige and who's getting to sit where. And Jesus is just going, boy, you... you you guys see what's going on? He starts talking to them. He gives them a bit of a parable. He talks about how they shouldn't always vie for the chief seat. And he starts interacting with them. And then it starts. the words start to get pretty scathing. And eventually he gets to the point where he gives them another story, the parable of the great supper. And he talks about certain issues. And finally he get, gets ready to go. And he's pretty much... Shares some tough words and as he's leaving the party the celebration there's a crowd of people that are waiting for him outside and we can see it in our imagination and as he gets out there they're thronging around him Jesus is very popular at this moment and he turns to them and he begins to utter some words that actually if you were trying to attract a crowd and wanted power you would never have said them it was like the most politically incorrect thing you could do he was not a politician he didn't try to figure out what everybody wanted to hear and shape his message to fit it. In fact, he, if anything, he was giving a course on how to be crucified 101. I mean, this is, like, this is how you get people mad at you and how to thin the crowd. And he basically said, he followed up what he had done in, in, in that uh, celebration. He follows up and he says, look, if anybody really is serious about following me, don't follow me because you think I can do these things. I'm not going to do them if that's, anyway, if that's what you're looking for right now anyway. But if you want to follow me, you've got to do this, you gotta recount the cost. And he starts talking to them about the conditions of discipleship. And he starts saying some tough words. He says, It's about surrendering. It's about loving me in a way that's gonna cause you to begin to, to be open to some changes. It was a it was a very straightforward, powerful word. And he concludes it. By talking about counting the cost, he says, if you're going to go, go to war, you better ca- count the cost that you actually can finish what you've begun. If you're going to build a tower, think it through, make sure you've got enough supplies, or else you're only going to have, have a building halfway done and no money to finish it. He's saying, in other words, don't just casually sign on for this. Think through what you're doing. And then he concludes it, and this is, again, what we're trying to do is establish how Jesus gets to the, what we call the 15th chapter, which is where the prodigal story is told, what got him there. He concludes that 14th chapter as he's talking to the multitudes. He says to them, and I'll put this, we'll put this up for you. He says, you are the salt, salt is good. He says, but if that salt has lost its, uh, its flavor, how shall it then season things, essentially? He says, it's good for nothing. We, and again, this connects us to where we were in the summer, the salt and light series. And Jesus says, but men will just throw it out. He says, and then he says, if any, anyone, in other words, if you lose your sense of distinctiveness, that don't ever forget that there has to be some element of distinctiveness. If, if that is lacking, then he goes, don't even, in other words, don't go into this thing halfway. Can you, if you have ears to hear, hear it. Now, that's the last verse in the 14th chapter, and it leads you right in to the 15th verse. Look at it. It's in the handout. For what does it say? It says, As he says to him who has ears to hear, notice what it says in the first verse of the 15th chapter, which is where our focus is going to be. It says, Then all the task collectors and the sinners, the, the outsiders, drew near to him. To what? To hear him. The outsiders drew near, but the Pharisees and the scribes would say they complained. So Jesus tells Gives these really tough words. And what happens is instead of repelling the, the people who are the outsiders, they're still drawn to him. They want to hear more because they sense his heart. And it's almost impossible to miss it. That when you look at this, you see that these, these are the ones. But you contrast their willingness to hear him with verse 2 with, with the Pharisees and the scribes who were complaining because they were offended. And now it's easy for us because it says that, that this man receives sinners and he eats with them. Look at him. How can he be sent from God? Now, we look at the scribes of the Pharisees and we go, man, what kind of people are these people? They're mean. And part of us is bothered by it. Now you, but I want to suggest that if we can for a moment look at something from their vantage point, put ourselves in their shoes for a moment because they were convinced, listen, that the close companion of the reckless person or the sinning person in this case was destined to become that person himself or herself. And honestly, the scriptures actually supported their view. If you read Psalm 1, for example, blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, stand in the way of sinners, sit in the seat of the scornful, their delight is in the law of the Lord. Not with those, they don't walk with those who hold the things of God in derision and live reckless lives. Self-centered lives, but it says, it says in, in Psalm 1, But their delight is in the law of the Lord, and in that law they meditate day and night. They shall be like a tree, what planted by the rivers of water brings forth its fruit in its season. Whatever, their, you know, uh, whatever they do, it, it will not perish. The leaf also will not wither. It's ta- ta- the point of that psalm, just the first psalm, is just one example of the Bible has a lot of things to say about the danger of, of being reckless in our relationships. And the Pharisees were steep. They were convinced that this was a dangerous proposition. That they were taught and understood that the Bible, as they understood it, their Old Testament was clear, that the company that one kept influenced, mattered, and shaped you. And that the hand that would make another clean must not itself be dirty. And so as they looked at what Jesus was doing, they were bothered. And now, by the way, principally, they were correct, actually. As, I, as it has been said, show me your friends and I will show you your future. There is some truth in that statement. It may not be in the Bible, but it's a true statement. How many, our associations affect our formation. So you can say, well, that's, are you, I'm not saying that in myself. a I'm just being, I agree, I'm saying this, I understand their view. I get it. I see how they were looking at it. And again, it's easy, oh, they're just a bunch of bad, mean people, well, they really believe. Jesus says he's a holy man. He says he's from God. He talks about it. He does things, clearly, that we can't explain. And, he, and yet, look at the way he interacts so cavalierly, violates clear principles. Not only is he doing something that is dangerous for himself, he is setting a bad example because he's interacting with them in a way that goes beyond just a casual, I have to, and he actually seems to be Enjoying himself in some way that, well, notice, what do they say? It says, this man receives, he welcomes them, that's what that means, and, and, but that was one thing. And we look at that, we say, receive sinners and ease with them, we go, oh, that's yeah, receive sinners and ease with them. <laughs> in their mind, that was actually, a, the two were, mm, don't just see them as one statement, divide it. He receives them, he welcomes them, he interacts, okay, we get that. We don't think it's wise, but he does more than that. He eats with them. You say, well, what's the the difference? Now, when you and I, so the best thing you can ever do as a friend, certainly in a marriage, um, is have genuine interaction. So much of our best interaction occurs when you actually can talk to someone. And a lot of times the best place to do that is is to share a cup of coffee, to eat lunch together, dinner, whatever. We often do it. It's still part of our culture and our tradition, and it is worldwide. Why is that? What is it? What's going on there? There's something about just being with someone, eating with someone. Uh, being able to talk, and, and when you have a friend that you that you a companion that you can actually interact with at a deep level, where you can have serious conversation, and then you can flow into lighthearted conversation, flow back. You don't have to worry about positioning words. You can be at ease. You're enjoying the meal together. You can talk and relax and have fun and enjoy that whole. There is so much richness in just that. If you, and they and what they were saying was he goes beyond just. Even welcoming them, interacting with them, he actually is bringing them in to a place of close companionship, and he has no sense of what it actually means in terms of his own defilement. Does he understand what he's actually doing? Think about the very word companion in our, it, that we use, like a friend, a companion, a, a partner, a, someone who is an associate with us, that we enjoy their friendship. It, the word companion, com-panis, with bread. that's what the word means. The very word flows out of the concept of breaking bread together, eating a meal together. It implies the association of deep friendship and relationship of intimacy into me see that it occurs oftentimes around the breaking of bread. And so much of that is just right there. And so they were saying, he goes beyond just kind of being okay around them. He's actually engaging them at a level of a deep friend and companion. And that is wrong. That's the setup. How could he violate this principle? How could he be so thoughtlessly reckless? And Jesus says, let me tell you a story. And so it begins. And really the story is three little stories, actually two little ones and one extended one. The extended one is the one that we're going to spend a lot of time with. That's the parable of the prodigal son. He added it on, and I'm sure he caught them off guard. But he starts with something completely different. And it's almost like he's reaching out to them so that when he speaks these parables, stay with me on this, it's almost like Jesus saying, I still care about you too. See, you and I, honestly, the way Jesus set the story up, for example, with the prodigal son, it's so easy to have compassion for prodigal. It's easy for us when people own things to be forgiving. There's something in us that loves that. And I get that. And I have needed it. I understand that. I like the prodigal son. Because he comes home broken. The older brother I don't like as much. And nobody really likes the Pharisees. Because they're mean. In this case particularly. They're more concerned with. And, and we're going to talk a lot about that. In other words I'm saying. But the reason I'm bringing that up. Is because Jesus honestly. Some of this story. Was not just to teach us about God's love for us and what that love compels them to do. But it was also, a, a, a met, Jesus was saying, my self-righteous friends. You don't understand why I eat with, with these people because you don't understand why I've come. And you don't understand why I've come because you don't understand the heart of God. So I want to talk to you about that. Let me tell you a story. The story was an attempt to get into their hard heart to get them to step out of their paradigm where everything was clear and, and there, were, there were no exceptions and he was pushing into it. He, and it wasn't just because I'm going to teach you and show you. It was I care about you. God cares about you too. Now listen to me. Let me tell you something. He says, and he, then we have what follows. This quickly. This will be the last portion of Scripture we look at. Well, he says in verse 4, what man of you having a hundred sheep? He says, now tell the truth. If you had a, you had a hundred sheep if he loses one and does not leave the 99 in the wilderness, but goes after the one which is lost until he finds it. And when he, he keeps, the, he's saying one's missing. Now we look at it and we go, shepherd, just sheep. Well, look, if you've ever seen sheep, I can't tell the difference between one sheep or another sheep, you know. Um, but a shepherd, they, even to this day, they know each one. Each one has a distinction. In fact, they give names to each one, they know them, they know, they know the, the uniqueness of them. Uh, in jesus day, the image would have been vivid and clear. Here is a shepherd they saw them all the time with his sheep regularly around them and he says he notices at the end of the day that he has out of the hundred, he 's missing one. He makes sure the ninety nine are safe but he goes and he searches for the one that is missing he 's not just going to forget about it doesn't he 's not going to say oh it doesn 't work no big deal I still got ninety nine it 's only what one one hundredth no he He's, he's going to say, I, I'm missing one. Where was that? Where could he have got lost? I'm going to go find him. And that journey might take him over hills. And it might mean putting in a whole lot more work than he had anticipated. But that doesn't matter. Because he's going to find that sheep and he's going to do what it takes and he goes and he finds, when he sees him, a long way off, perhaps caught and exhausted. Maybe he got stuck and he was working so hard that sheep, it could, finally he's just completely exhausted, stuck, and totally vulnerable as well. With no defense system. Sheep is always used because, think about it, it has no defense system. It doesn't have any odor to release. It has no claws or teeth. It's slow not gifted with great intelligence. <laughs> it's just vulnerable. And the shepherd finds the exhausted sheep that he knows by name. And Jesus says, you know it's true because he loves it. That's his sheep, and he takes it. And see the picture, Jesus says, and he takes it. And maybe some of us have seen the, the picture of Jesus that sometimes people have painted and turned to icons of the, shepherd, the great shepherd with the sheep on him. The two tired sheep he's carrying, oh, well, that's you and me. I have been there. Then he says, oh, going to tell you one more story. And you don't think when that person comes home with his sheep that everybody's excited for him? I found him. He's here. I got it. He says, let me tell you one more thing. You know what? He says, which of you are, you think about this. He says, if you were a woman and you had, he says, 10 coins and you knew you had them, you just had them a minute ago, but all of a sudden, one well, somewhere you're counting them, there's only nine left, and you know that somewhere in here you must have dropped it. Your floor probably is covered with, you know, dried, you know, some type of reeds, but underneath it is a dirt floor, and if that coin were to fall on that dirt floor because it's loose dirt possibly or just covered up in some crevice or crack you 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 wouldn't know where it was then it gets dark you have no there's no electric lighting you've got to light a lamp you start looking what does he say look at what he he says in verse 8 he says or what woman having 10 silver coins if she loses one coin does not light a lamp notice the action words here sweeps the house searches carefully until she finds it and when she has found it she calls her friends and neighbors together saying rejoice with me for I have found the peace that I lost. I got it. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents, my friends. And he says, and then he goes right on to talk about the story of the lost son, the prodigal. And he's, what Jesus is saying is, look, listen to me. You understand what I'm doing because you've misunderstood the heart of God. Let me tell you something about God. And this is what we'll close with in these closing minutes that we have. Very briefly, stick it up there. First thing that we notice here, what we can learn about God in the big picture, which is setting us up for where we're going in the weeks ahead, is that God cares uh, deeply about the one. Well, it was a hundred sheep. One was lost. There were ten coins. One was lost. Watch the numbers. There's two sons. In my mind, both were lost. He pursues them both, as we'll see. But initially, it's the one. It's about the Lord who cares about the one. He's not so quick to write it off and concede the loss because his love compels him to search. And that's why there's so much action in this. He does not simply, even when he get to the parable of the prodigal son, it's the, it's not, think about it. It's the shepherd going after the sheep. It's the woman searching diligently, sweeping, lighting the lamp, fight, looking for it till she finds it. It's the father who, when he sees his son from a distance, runs to him. And it's that old man pulling up his robes with all his lack of dignity. But he is going to get his son and he's going to put his arms around him. And he's going to start crying, and he's going to kiss him, and he's going to tell him, I love you, you've come home, where you belong. It's great. I love it. I love it. To know the kiss of God is a beautiful thing, especially when we know we didn't deserve it. Mm. Thank you, Lord. So that why? Why? Why is his heart, is he so concerned about finding what is lost? Why? Because it's the joy of finding that's all over these these. Stories. It's the delight, the sheer delight in finding the lost thing. Secondly, the other principle that I think he was making very clear, even beyond the idea of the joy of finding what is lost, which all of us can relate to the joy of finding what is lost, but also this teaches us that there are certain things that God cares as much about our loveless attitudes as he does about the obvious sins. Now, a lot of us, we go, oh, I know God doesn't like that because it's pretty clear. But we're more likely to miss this other thing as well. And one of the things that comes out very clearly, see, listen to me, stay with me. The Pharisees had not committed the obvious sins. They had not gone the way of the publican. What was the publican in this case? He was the tax collector who who was a traitor to his own people. He had sold out to Rome for money. The worst of the worst was the publican. This person was despised universally. Then there were the sinners. It's true. They had not gone the way of the outsider, the unwashed, the the one who was reckless and, and wasteful and had engaged in all kinds of unrestrained behavior. So in that sense, they were just in that regard. But listen, if we look at it closely, though, it's like Jesus says to them, that may be true. You haven't gone that way, but you have other issues. Not the least of which is that you have no love in your heart. It, it's like he was zeroing in on something. He says, you have other issues and that lack of love and that lack of genuine concern for the lost, your, your willingness to just write off people that God cares about so quickly and callously. What's wrong with you? Have you forgotten it's powerful. It's profound. And it's a reminder that it's like he says to them, look, you, the, you, your lack of love makes you just as lost. You're just lost. You're just wandering down a different road. And, then, and in fact, he says, but what's more, you're worse off. You know why? Because you don't even know it. No, you're lost. They at least know it. You think you're okay. This, he was getting into it. Last thing I'll say, and it is the last thing I'll say, is that these parables remind us not just of the joy of finding, but it reminded me, and I, I, I have not been able to capture this thought properly, but it reminds us of the joy of being found. And I was trying to say, why did I originally use that phrase? What, what was it? Because I was trying to imagine myself lost, stranded somewhere, with no way to get out, desperate, Absolutely desperate, maybe even despairingly hopeless, to be so lost to give up, and then to have someone find us the joy of being found. how wonderful it is I was thinking about what it feels how wonderful it is to be found when you're lost. how wonderful it is to be rescued when you can't find your way. How wonderful it is for us to finally come home you see these are touching the deepest emotions that we have as a human being it's the joy of being found we're gonna talk a lot about that in the weeks ahead but Lord Jesus as we are here now before you in this morning this late morning this afternoon time God you know we've talked a lot we've looked at your scriptures we've looked at the way you interacted we're trying to set up something for where we're going but Lord just this whole idea of the fact that you have come to rescue us in the big picture, that God so loves this world that he gave his only begotten son. You know, this whole idea of you coming and searching and not giving up on us, that you didn't just say, ah, who cares, but you were willing to enter in fully and just as real as that shepherd carried the sheep on his back, I can think of another great shepherd who walked up a hill carrying something else on his back. I'm thinking of you, Lord, who gave everything for us that we might be found. Ah oh, God. And when we really get it it, it, it should stir up our gratitude, Lord. But more than just that, it's a reminder that even when we sometimes have grown to know you and opened up our hearts to you, Lord, we, we get off course. We wander here. We wander there. We wander this person. And we forget about you. And we fall like prodigal does into our own willfulness. And it's in those moments where you pick us up out of the mud. And we don't even want to look at your face. That we feel the kiss on our cheek that says, you are my beloved. Come home where you belong. And Lord, I am, thank- I am thankful for that, Lord. And maybe we maybe never wander, wander off to the far country, but I've wandered off a hundred times away from what I know you wanted me to do. And you don't give up on us. Your grace pulls us and compels us. You are the rescuing God. And I'm so grateful for that. I pray that you bless each one is here. Bless us as we close the service out with this final song and also as we engage in our time of giving as a church, as a community of people. May you be honored in this as well. In Jesus' name, amen.